1: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. On the Verge is also brought to you by SeatGeek.com. Head on over to SeatGeek.com, use promo code ONTHEVERGE, and all first-time users can get $20 off your next purchase to an Orioles game, concert, comedy show, whatever event you're in the mood for this week or this weekend. Head over to SeatGeek.com. Use promo code on the verge, get $20 off your first order today.
0: Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined by Nick Stevens. Bob Phelan is enjoying a vacation this week. He will be back with us on Sunday when we have a special episode for MLB draft night one. And because we have that coming up, that means that tonight is our final draft preview. The Orioles picking first overall this year bringing a lot of intrigue and most mock drafts do not seem to know where the Orioles are going to go with their selection this year. So I'll bring in Nick now, Nick, it feels like, you know, we're now six days away and we don't seem to have much more certainty than we did a month or perhaps even six weeks ago about who the Orioles are going to take one, one.
1: Nope. And I think that's the way the Orioles like it. Um, I mean, this is kind of standard practice with them. We have no idea who it's going to be, and every single mock draft you see out there has somebody different. Uh, and I think every single mock draft and every single write-up says the same thing as well. It's we have no idea what's going to happen. Uh, so I kind of like it that way. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know, be, being an Orioles fan and the Orioles having the 1-1 pick and so many elite talents or perceived elite talents this year um, and hopefully this us being the last time for a long time we have the one one pick it's I, I want to know now uh, but like that's why I hate like the NBA draft because you got Woj and everybody tweeting out the picks a minute before they actually happen you have to like mute everybody for the night on Twitter uh, but as a fan when you have the one one pick um, I'm just ready to find out who it is Sunday night.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that you know there's going to be a lot of analysis over the next week or so, because the one thing that you continue to hear about this draft is that there is a lot of talent, especially with high school hitters. There is a college bat or two that the Orioles might be interested in. And that while Drew Jones has sort of emerged as the consensus best prospect in the draft, it's not a slam dunk in a lot of ways, which we're going to get into tonight, because What we're going to do in our preview is take a look at the five names that have kind of been in the mix, whether it's through mock drafts um, or prospect rankings, that seem like plausible top one picks. We have kind of heard that it looks like the Orioles are looking at five different players. A lot of outlets have reported that it could be five players with four high school bats and one college bat. That is most widely believed to be Brooks Lee but there are some different directions the Orioles could go in. And I guess I'll start our discussion. We're going to look at the top five guys, with the player I just mentioned a moment ago, and that is Drew Jones. Most rankings now have him as the number one prospect in this draft. He has the bloodlines of being Andre Jones, son and probably the closest thing in this draft to a potential five tool player, which says a lot when you consider the amount of high school talent available this year so, Nick, from what you've seen with Jones, what do you think are maybe the pros and cons in his game right now? Uh,
1: as far as his game, like I don't really know what the big weaknesses are uh, it, as far as his game on the field goes. I mean, we're not scouts or draft experts here, but when you compile everything that's out there on these guys, the discussion around Drew Jones is that he's an elite defender who has all the tools, ability, and the bloodlines to stick in center field. And, there are even some scouts you've seen where they they think he can play at shortstop. They've watched him work out there and say this could be a guy who could potentially stick in the dirt. Uh, so that only adds to his repertoire. You look at the bat, you see over and over again the impressive bat-to-ball skills, the power. And the one thing that I I've seen is, you know, the one knock might be. There might be some holes in his swing, right? There's that, but I feel confident in this organization's ability to smooth any of those issues out. Like if you look at how Gunnar Henderson has evolved, Kobe Mayo's evolving so far, even though he's only been in low A and high A right now. Jordan Westberg, how he's evolved over the last year two years. We just talked about last week about all these guys in the organization like uh, Stowers, Gunnar Henderson, who have significantly cut their strikeout rates while holding everything else steady. I just think that I feel confident in this organization's ability to fix a guy's swing. If it's just a matter of a mechanical tweak here, a mechanical tweak there with Drew Jones then they could tap into that potential. So as as far as his game goes, um, you know, he doesn't really seem to have any major glaring holes. I think except bucking against the trend, maybe he's a right-handed hitter, right? So that's, that might be the one thing that goes against him when you're talking about Orioles and who they like to draft and who they they like to bring in recently.
0: Yeah. With Jones, you know, there are some reports that question the hit tool, but most evaluators I think agree that with his, ability, if not likelihood, to stick in center field and be an elite defender there, that he's going to add value even if he does not turn out to be, you know, an elite hitter necessarily. I guess what I'm wondering, what, you know, is a big discussion at this point is what's going to happen with the Orioles and are they going to go under slot with the first pick like they have in the last two drafts, or are they going to take the best player available and try to figure out how to leverage the rest of that bonus pool, which is the largest in the draft this year, to still get value beyond the first pick. Because one thing that you do hear from Mike Elias consistently is about maximizing as much value out of the draft as possible. What does that mean? In simple terms, I don't really know, but it does suggest some sort of strategy.
1: Yeah, and I've, I was thinking about this a lot today, knowing this is what we're going to talk about today. And like, I've got two sides of the argument here. Uh, and I agree with both sides and I'm fine with either way this goes. Uh, but as far as if it's Drew Jones, right? I, I went Jackson holiday in our mock draft the other week, because I thought that that just fit my fantasy draft narrative that I wanted to play out. Uh, and at the end of the day though, I don't care if it's Drew Jones, Tamar Johnson, Jackson holiday, or even Brooks Lee, and we'll talk about those guys in, in a minute. But I wouldn't be over the moon if it's Lee. But you know, I feel like that's someone who would grow on me. But looking at it from the Orioles' perspective and where they could go here, they have the largest draft pool by almost two million dollars, right? Largely thanks to that Tanner Scott Cole for trade, got the additional comp pick, got an extra million dollars. The slot value for one one is basically half of their draft pool for those first ten rounds. And if Jones wants every penny of that, as a high school kid with his track record, his lineage his commitment to Vanderbilt, like he has all the leverage there and he can say, no, go to Vanderbilt. That's a pretty good fallback option. And I don't know who the high priced targets are in the, you know, comp rounds or rounds two or round three that you may be targeting. Uh, but maybe if you want to save money at one, one to go tab one of those guys later on, you know, what are the options going to be? We don't know. Right. But I just think that if you go with Drew Jones, the Orioles get to choose, At this point, this year, they get to choose between three, four, and maybe five guys who all deserve to be one. One, Uh, and we know that it's a college hitter heavy draft, and so we also know that the Orioles tend to be, at least right now, on this path of developing, taking pitchers from small schools, taking no name pitchers, and turning them into top thirty guys or fringe top thirty prospects, and growing this pool of valuable depth. Right, so they can find value elsewhere in this draft. They've done it so far. but with Drew Jones, like if you just want to take that big bonus pool, give him every penny, give him full slot value, then this could be the year where hopefully you're not picking 1-1 one, one ever again, or at least not for a long, long time. Uh, if there's not those high price targets in comp rounds, rounds two or three, just go all in, put all your chips in there with Drew Jones right there. Uh, the farm system's in a great spot. The international classes are bringing in more top talents and I think the, the waves of talent are forming pretty rapidly to where there's a constant flow that are going to be working their way up to the major leagues. So I just think if you put a a big chunk of your chips on the table right now and let's roll the dice with Drew Jones, like you can still get a really another good piece a few picks later with the large amount of money you have. You can fill out the rest of your top 10 rounds with some high floor senior signs. But you know we know that the ultimate goal here is to make sure that those constant waves are fed. And so I would bet that you know, if they can save money at the top, and still land a good prospect at 1-1, they're probably going to go that route, though. But the fan in me wants wants the pick to to be Drew Jones.
0: Yeah, there's a really strong argument for Jones. I feel like personally the gap between him and Jackson Holiday has shrunk a little bit, and that has more to do with Jackson Holiday's performance this spring than anything. But I do believe that Jones is the best prospect available in this draft class. And I think, like you said, it's really just a matter of do you feel like the Drew Jones is that elite player that, you know, what if you have to commit half your bonus pool for the first 10 rounds to get him, you do it because he's an elite talent. You already have prospects in the farm system, and maybe you're still able to get some value over those remaining picks. The so one thing, and this is something we'll probably talk about in a little bit, is that it seems like if the Orioles are going to target um, some type of player in those next few spots. They could go for a pitcher that has questions either about injuries or about pure stuff, but has the attributes of a first rounder. Um, it seems like there's a lot of those kind of arms this year. And I'm wondering, you know, how interested are the Orioles in going that route? You know, do they want to get someone who is possibly in the lead arm and bring them into the system? Or are they going to be deterred by the risk a little bit?
1: Yeah, and I know from a fan perspective, you know, you hear the stories about Judd Fabian, Nick Bitsko being guys that apparently the Orioles reportedly wanted to throw a bunch of money at and grab later on. And they were sniped by ALE's rivals in both those instances, Fabian to the Red Sox, uh, which, you know, he didn't sign. So now he's back in the draft pool and Nick Bitsko went to the Rays, which I think tells you everything you need to know about Nick Bitsko right there. But you know, there are a lot of these college pitchers who were injured. They had Tommy John surgery before the season started early on in the season. I think Connor Prelip, for example, he's throwing bullpens now, so he's working his way back. But you have so many of the guys who missed all year. At the same time, you have a lot of guys who had really positive late, any, or late season surges. They had big performances in the College World Series. So I'm wondering You have Kumar Rocker, the medicals around Kumar Rocker. So I imagine he's firmly in the first round here and rising up draft boards. So if some of these hurt college pitchers fall, you have a guy like Connor Prelip from Alabama who Baseball America in their most recent mock draft. I think they went, what, 41 or 42 picks deep. They didn't have Prelip going in those top 40 something picks. And that's a guy who before the season started, some outlets said this is a pitcher who's in the one one conversation this year. He's that good. And so if teams are going to go after those college pitchers who made a big name for themselves late in the year uh, and they fall, if you want to save a little bit money at the top to make sure you have the biggest bonus pool available to go after some of those pitchers or a pitcher like Jackson Ferris, high school guy, IMG Academy, went to high school with Elijah Green. So I'm sure you're going to make trips to see Elijah Green and Jackson Ferris at the same time, probably multiple trips there. Why not bring the biggest bonus pool you got available and, and see what happens?
0: we go now to a player who has risen up draft boards this spring and has put himself into the mix with for that possible one-one pick. And that is Jackson Holiday, the son of seven time all-star outfitter Matt Holliday. Holliday listed at six one, one seventy-five, bats left and throws from the right side, is currently a shortstop. He's committed to Oklahoma State, where his uncle is the head coach, and there's a strong family tie between the holidays and Oklahoma State. But Feeling right now seems to be that he's gaining momentum as at least a top two or a top three pick, if not a possible 1-1. So, Nick, just general thoughts on Holiday, because this is not someone that going back to February when we really launched our draft coverage was in that conversation, but he's forced his way in there since then.
1: I mean, I wouldn't be mad if the pick is Holiday just because there seems to be a lot of agreement that he has the highest odds to stick at shortstop as he matures and moves up an organization. So you got options there. you got Drew Jones, who seems like a bona fide stud center field prospect. And then you have Jackson Holiday, who among the shortstop prospects, every report you see kind of agrees that he can stick there. You see Brooks Lee, lots of talk about him moving to second or third base. Tamar Johnson, lots of talk about him moving to second base, obviously. But Holiday, Holiday looks like he could stick. Um, seems like there's some of the bigger issues last year with him were trying to sell out for more power. And when you stopped doing that, you saw less swing and miss. You saw more good contact. He's a 60-grade runner, according to most outlets, which you know isn't Drew Jones or Elijah Green level, but he's got a 70-hit tool. I think MLB Pipeline and Baseball America have him as a 70-hit tool, and you know that's Tamar Johnson and Brooks Lee level. Uh, so I think... Part of me wants to be skeptical of someone being pushed up into the top two or three uh, this late in the draft season. And these rankings just based on recent, if they're being pushed to the top, top two or three within this group, it's not based on just recent performance. But again, we haven't watched a lot of these guys, but if you look at a lot of the public scouting grades, Holiday may have a slightly better hit tool with less power compared to Jones, but both have the bloodlines, both project to stick at premier positions if you can save a bit of money on Holiday, I don't know what his bonus demands have been, but um, this is another instance where you still get a guy at a premium defensive position. And if you can save a little bit of money, it grades out almost equally as well as Jones, then I imagine Holiday would be a higher priority option over Drew Jones at that point.
0: Yeah, the ability to stick at a premium position, I think is going to be the key thing for Holiday. And You combine that elite speed with an elite hit tool. The one thing I do wonder, is you look at the body size. He's smaller than Gunnar Henderson was in his senior year. Um, Henderson was a guy that had a tremendous amount of raw power. The Orioles have tapped into that. And he looks like he can be, you know, a true power hitter at the major league level. Holiday. That's one thing I haven't quite gotten the sense of yet is what is his power projection? Because I do think that is going to be a factor for the Orioles when they're looking at this is how much power can he hit for? But at the same time, when you have that hit tool, you have, what is reportedly a very high baseball IQ um, and that ability to stick into an elite position,
1: that's a good player. Yeah. I just, was there a comment earlier? let me scroll back through the comments there. Add it there. Yep. He says, yeah. with Jackson holiday being a lefty and Matt holiday's time in St. Louis overlapping with Elias and Sigma idol I mean he's more likely than drew to be picked or does that mean nothing? Yeah. I've said during our mock draft episode that, I feel like the Orioles have a pretty good relationship already with that Oklahoma State program. They've drafted a number of guys from that program, a number of guys who were going to go to that program. Noah DeNoyer was supposed to go to Oklahoma State uh, before going to the Orioles. So, I mean, I imagine that helps. Uh, so any relationship that they can form with these guys is going to help at some point, you have to imagine. And I think some of that is going to come down to, you know, how much would Jackson Holiday, would he take a cut to be that one, one pick, you know, we don't know, but it's, it's interesting. I'd have him. If we're looking at my top three options though, personally, Holiday's probably number three on my list. Drew Jones is my number one as a fan. I'm not set on any of these guys because there's so much uncertainty. I don't want to be focused in on one guy and then be like disappointed on draft night. I want to leave my options open, but my preference board, I've got Drew Jones one and I'm putting holiday at number three right now. So who is your number two? My number two is Tamar Johnson. Well, let's
0: just move right into Tamar Johnson then. Uh, Johnson was a guy that was kind of neck and neck for a while with Drew Jones in that conversation of possible 1-1. What has happened, though, is that a couple of things that have played out where his stock seems to have dipped a bit. A lot of it is really not his own fault. It has to do with apparently his high school team not being very good. And Johnson may be not getting the reps that he should have as a result of that. But the other question is about where he's going to end up. He has played shortstop in high school, but a lot of reports seem to believe that he's going to end up moving to second base as he fills out and gets into professional baseball. So at that point, you're counting on an elite hit tool coming into play because second base second basemen are often not one-ones, uh, just because it's not a premium position. These are typically guys that don't project for a lot of power. Jones, or excuse me, Johnson, does seem to be a little bit maxed out physically, but there is true power there. So you would have an elite bat and good left-handed power, but at second base. And that seems to be where a lot of teams are stopping short right now, or at least a lot of evaluators who are putting together mock drafts are stopping short on Johnson. However, it does feel like that because of that, maybe this would be a true under-slot pick if the Orioles went for him. But at the same time, getting someone who a lot of people believe belongs in that 1-1 discussion and is the best prospect in this draft.
1: There's so much talk about that hit tool, which MLB Pipeline and Baseball America both give a 70 grade on. And note that there are some scouts out there who give him an 80 grade hit tool. And I don't I don't like comps. I can't I don't do them personally. I think every player is unique in their own way. And I, it's just not my thing. But I'm not going to ignore a comp. If you're telling me that we've talked about this before. If you're going to tell me that he's got the plate discipline of Wade Boggs and the bat to ball skills of Vladdy Sr. like That's impressive. That's hard to ignore. And so I think if the hit tool really is that good, then you have to imagine that he doesn't stick around in the minors for very long. Uh, but there's also a lot of high praise for his raw power and his ability to be a 25 to 30 home run guy in the majors. I don't think my goal this year was to go completely all in, in the draft and college baseball. I I learned so much of the last two, three years following more and more college baseball, but having a second kid in April, I knew I just put that project on hold. I'm not going to do that this year because that's going to pump the brakes on that. So I'm not as, deep into these conversations as I wanted to be this year, but I just feel like the talk about Tamar Johnson's power doesn't get highlighted enough. It's all about that hit tool, hit tool. Uh, But when you see that kind of raw power and we see, look at Jordan Westberg, Robert Neustrom, some examples I can think of guys who had good raw power, maybe weren't translating well into games. Westberg at the college level, Neustrom in the lower levels of the minor leagues, the Orioles got that power, that game power out of these guys. And so I think, if you're able to get – if he's able to be a 300 hitter who can hit 25-plus home runs, I don't care about the defense. Uh, it Honestly, if you draft Tamar Johnson, please announce him as a second baseman because I think that would be awesome. <laughs> just don't even try to hide it. He's a shortstop. No, just announce him as a second baseman. That's all I'm asking for. But like, we don't know – or we do know that publicly Johnson worked out at Camden Yards. He's been at games. That's been well-publicized. Obviously, anyone the Orioles are in serious talks with have had workouts at Camden Yards. It just hasn't been public knowledge yet. Uh, but we do know that, so that doesn't mean anything, but we do know that the Orioles are clearly interested in Tamar Johnson. And Jim Callis, MLB Pipeline, has been reporting that he wants to be that 1-1 pick, and he's willing to go underslot. So if he's willing to take a 2000000 dollar million-plus uh, drop in his signing bonus demands, and you can get a premier talent at 1-1, who's probably not going to be in the minor leagues for very long, who has that hit tool, who has that power potential, and you can hopefully, like I just mentioned earlier, save that money and go after maybe a Connor Prelip, maybe Judd Fabian, maybe a Jackson Ferris, some of these other pitchers that might be available just a couple of picks later, that's a win-win, and that's going to be a huge draft. We're talking about the Orioles needing to hit a home run in this draft. There's your opportunity right there.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I don't see any harm if they would draft Johnson and just saying up front, he's a second baseman. You know, we can, we've got shortstops in the organization now um, and we can always draft another shortstop or acquire one, but we see a player that despite his youth could move quickly um, because of his bat and we'll put him in the position where he's going to best fit in the future and not have the issue of the defense. And I think the other thing that, doesn't get talked about a lot with the Orioles that is worth considering with a guy like Johnson is they have found ways to keep players focus their primary positions while adding versatility to their game. I mean, an example you've seen Connor Norby in the outfield a little bit this year, which was not something that was really expected last year after Norby was drafted all the reports were this is the guy that's going to have to stick at second base. But he is, you know, moving around a little bit. It's the same even for guys like Adam Hall. Um, Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson have had to do that. So I don't think the Orioles would necessarily limit themselves to only playing Tamar Johnson at second base, but they could do that in a way where that's still his primary focus is being the best defensive second baseman that he can be and being able to move to other positions when needed.
1: Yeah. And it, the Orioles have been really good about that. Even uh, I thought of Joey Ortiz when you were talking about that and he's been moved around as well. And when you put him back at shortstop, he's still one of the the best defenders in this entire organization. Uh, So I just think that also you've heard kind of reports that after going outfield, you know, there may be some inclination that the Orioles maybe want to look at the infield target an infielder with this pick. I think that makes a lot of sense because obviously you don't draft for need. We all know that, but if you look at the Major League roster, Austin Hayes is having a fantastic year, and he's staying healthy. Cedric Mullins you may not be the Mullins of last year, but he's been better than I think the numbers suggest. There's been a lot of talk about that recently. you got two guys who are playing extremely well. You've got Stauer sitting there. You've got Colton Kowser who's playing well and already in A. We're going to talk about Heston Kirstein later on, but he's having a phenomenal debut to his pro career after everything that happened. You've got plenty of outfielders and guys you can deal from, Guys, you can kind of move around and figure out what's gonna who are going to be your three guys in the major league level. In the infield, like you've got Westberg, you've got Henderson. You bring a guy like Tamar Johnson. You can move guys like Joey Ortiz, your Adam Halls. I'm trying to think of who else. You can move a lot of these guys. These middle infield prospect depth that you're acquiring, you can put together some fantastic trade packages and pretty much go out and acquire almost any starting pitcher you want in major league baseball. Uh, so, I think Johnson just fits this organization pretty well. Uh, and I think he allows you to do a whole lot of different things when you start talking about guys in the upper levels of the minor leagues your Connor Norby's, your Cesar Pretos. When it comes time for wheeling and dealing and trades, you feel a lot more confident in dealing from these top prospect depths because you know you got a guy like Tamar Johnson a year away, year and a half away from the major leagues.
0: So, before we move on from our discussion about Johnson, we'll take a couple of interesting listener questions here. Start with Adit where would tomorrow be in a metaphorical 2024 to 2030 major league lineup top of the order? I, when I look at his profile, I think that's one of the most well-rounded number two hitters that you could ask for.
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And if he's a guy who can come in and you know battling at bats and work deep counts and get on base at a high clip, like it seems all these reports suggest he can do, then yeah, you got a top of an order. That's, Looking pretty impressive. And I don't know his speed. His speed seems okay. I think I don't remember like what his speed grades out as. Uh, but yeah, I think he's the top of the top of the order guy. You put there and someone who can give you if he's gonna give you 20 home runs again and get on base to a 350, 360 clip. It's I find myself talking myself more, more and more into Tamar Johnson. Thanks, Bob, uh, for that. But I was kind of Tamar Johnson was down further on my list two three months ago uh, and it wasn't because of the defense not because he's probably locked in the second base it was just all right he's got an impressive hit tool but you know you can you can make guys better hitters right if you're a 60 grade versus 70 grade hit tool i don't think that's a big enough difference to you know put tamar johnson over drew jones or jackson holiday in, in my personal preference but you're talking about the power the versatility there if he's if he has that positional versatility. Yeah, Tamar Johnson's rising up my personal preference board here.
0: So, a question from Wyatt: Wyatt, who else in the O's farm system presents at second base for the long term? Seems like Elias will grab the best bat available in the second baseman. So be it. Who blocks Tamar right now at second?
1: I mean, no one's really blocking anybody. If you know, if the better guy is going to play, I think as far as like true second baseman norby has played like you mentioned a little bit of outfield but he's been primarily second base uh, and i we've talked before again people like to ask us our opinion about you know norby vavra preto how do we rank those guys floor ceiling and i think all three of us agreed that norby has the highest ceiling uh and so you know i'd say it's probably norby to answer that question but i don't really know who else cesar Pareto is playing a really good third base plays a decent shortstop. I think he's profiles more as a utility guy. I think Taron Vavra, I've mentioned plenty of times he profiles as a a utility guy in the major leagues. So really, I only think you're looking at Vavra, you know, and you got Westberg and Henderson, you can put on the left side of the infield. So.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. Eventually these things tend to sort themselves out with elite players. And often what you'll, find is no one is blocked um, either because you make the tough decision when you have to make it, or unfortunately some players just don't always work out as expected. And we'll go now to an outfielder who has probably one of the loudest, if not the loudest home run tool in this draft. And that is Eliza green. It was about this time a year ago. Green seemed to be emerging as a possible favorite for the one, one pick, but what has held him back a little bit is, primarily questions about his swing and miss tendencies, if he's going to strike out too much. And what seems to be the likelihood that he would shift out of center field into a corner spot, he's already listed at 6'3", 225 at 19 years old. So Green, or excuse me, 18 years old, he'll turn 19 in December. But one thing that pretty much every evaluator agrees on is that Green has a tremendous amount of power from the right side. So... Interesting player with a definite risk factor, but also possibly high reward.
1: I think it seems like he's the guy who's slipping the most here. There just doesn't seem to be as much hype. But like you mentioned, the power is impressive. The athleticism, the speed, the whole package is one you can kind of dream on. And you see a lot of people think that he has the highest ceiling in this draft class. He also has the bloodlines, football bloodlines, but still you see that athleticism in him. Yeah, I don't know anything about what his bonus demand is. So personally, I kind of think he's a wild card here. And I was I almost wonder if, if all the hype and attention really has kind of faded, if the Orioles can use that to their advantage in negotiations and say, hey, we want you at 1-1, but this is our dollar amount. If you want it, it's yours, but here's where you could end up falling if you don't take it. And so I could be wrong in that assessment, but it just seems that when a lot of outlets believe he has the highest upside in this class, and we had Will Hafer on the other week from Prospects Live. He seemed pretty confident in Green's improvements and cutting down those strikeouts as the season went along. And I think a lot of what he had to say about Elijah Green kind of calmed some of my fears about him. And so I, I just think that after all this discussion that it, it's probably – I could very well see it being Elijah Green because he's the dark horse that nobody's talking about, and then out of the blue – We see 30 seconds before the pick is made on ESPN or whatever network it's on. We all see the tweet notification. The pick is Elijah Green. Uh, I would not be shocked if uh, that's the case here. He's the dark horse pick.
0: Yeah, Green is interesting because I wouldn't be shocked if he was the first overall pick, but I wouldn't be shocked if he slipped to sixth or seventh. Um, it, It feels like it could go either way. One thing with Green that's interesting is that his run tool grades really well, despite his size. I mean, 6'3", 225, you're not picturing someone that can move with a lot of speed, but his speed does grade out really well. So you've got that possible stolen base profile, and even if he doesn't stick in center field, someone who's going to run well at one of the corner spots. Um, Here's what I think is interesting about Green. I'm going to pose this question to you we have seen the Orioles go after players that have good raw power, but questionable hit tools. And while they haven't, you know, fully developed one of them into a star major leaguer yet, they've made a lot of them better prospects. than I think people would have expected Gunnar Henderson, Kyle Stowers. I think that what they've done with Kobe Mayo and his, you know, still relatively short time in pro ball has been impressive. And even with Ryan Mountcastle, who hasn't become as complete of a hitter as I think some people would have liked, they've still found a way to make sure that the swing and miss tendencies don't drown out everything else. So if the Orioles are looking at an underslot pick, could they look at that and say, well, we can do a better job than most, if not every other organization in baseball in solving this problem?
1: I would say so i mean just you look at the guys in the major leagues as well not even just the prospects here you look at guys in the major leagues like you mentioned ryan mountcastle but santander as well a lot of discussion about his walk rate walks are through the roof strikeouts are down Uh, we can list off 10 prospects right now where walks are up or everything else is constant but strikeouts are way down and kyle stowers i think is the best example of that because he's this guy with this huge swing loud swing huge swing and miss tendency in, as he was coming up through the organization. And and I remember it was Rock Kabako having a piece of mass in one of his mailbags, where someone said, is the organization concerned about you know, Kyle Stowers and his strikeouts? And he was point blank. He was like, no, they're not. Uh, you look at that power, you look at the complete package of Kyle Stowers, they'll take those strikeouts. Uh, and clearly they've worked with him on that. And his improvement in that area has been phenomenal. One of the most impressive things when you look at these guys in the upper levels of the minor leagues, and even just the defense as well, going back to that, reports of maybe him having to move to a corner outfield spot, like because of his size. I mean, I, I know I'm pretty familiar with Chase Delauder I, Unfortunately, the injury took him out of that one-one conversation. I was hoping and praying that Delatorre is going to play his way into that pick, but he's an orthodox swing. He's he's tall. He's big. He's not a prototypical center fielder. But I talked to two different scouts at JMU baseball games and they're like, no, that's if, if he falls to us, that's our center fielder. Uh, I've seen enough. There was one play he made. I remember, I believe it was a Padres scout. I can't remember. He looked, he turned around and looked at me and was like, I've seen enough. Uh, I don't need to watch him anymore. One, he's not getting to us, uh, but he's a center fielder. So if, Chase the, If scouts see Chase the as a starting center fielder to the next level, then you know, Elijah Green can stick there as well. And if the strikeouts got better as the season went along in the high school game, then I have all the confidence in the world, this organization, being able to hopefully smooth that out as he gets into to pro ball.
0: Turn our attention now to the college bat that has been linked to the Orioles perhaps more than any other college hitter in this draft, and that is Brooks Lee, an infielder out of Cal Poly who – is a really well-rounded player, not necessarily the one with the loudest tools, but he's sort of been in that conversation as a possible under-slot option. So Nick, you mentioned you wouldn't be over the moon for Brooks Lee if he was 1-1, but you wouldn't, I don't think you'd hate the pick either.
1: No, I wouldn't hate it at all. Uh, It would just take me some time to get excited about this pick. Kind of like, you know, all these people who did not like the Colton Kowser pick, And then you watch him play and it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. I see. Uh, I, I like this guy. That would be me with Brooks Lee though. I mean, yeah, he's the best college hitter, supposedly the best college hitter in this draft class. And there's a lot of reasons you can point to and say that Brooks Lee is very possibly the number one pick for the Orioles college high floor, good bat to ball skills can probably save some money there. Yada, yada, yada. We all know the drill there. Uh, but it just seems like, for me, some of the red flags that stick out are the injuries. The guy's had knee surgery already, uh, multiple, I think, stints or long stints where he's missed games due to back problems, hamstring issues. I think he's already had surgery on that as well, I was reading. He's got a long injury history, and I don't. I just don't want another Taron Vavra in this situation. Use Neil Diaz, guys who are constantly on the IL. I don't want Brooks Lee doing the same uh, or have that worry in the back of my mind. But you look at some of these numbers, I mean, he's done it. He hit 351, only played two seasons worth of games at Cal Poly freshman year. I think he only had like two games or something, but he hit 351 in college, more walks and strikeouts, a 1099 OPS. And you look at the Cape Cod League, we had a 1099 OPS in the Cape Cod League last year. He struck out a lot, didn't walk that much in the Cape Cod League, but he hit. He hit in the Northwoods League after his freshman year. So he's a college hitter ton of experience with the wooden bat in two different summer leagues. We know the Orioles like that. So I wouldn't be overly excited if it's Brixley, but that's a pick that I think would grow on me. And another one who is probably not going to be in the minor leagues for very long, if that is the pick.
0: You just touched on the next point I was going to bring up, which is that I think this season with the way the Orioles are playing, they've now won eight in a row. They're a game under 500. It has people maybe excited about the possibility that, the Orioles might be able to contend sooner than we expected. And if you draft a guy like Brooks Lee with that 1-1 pick, who's going to get to the major leagues quickly, that could help you maybe as soon as 2024, when I think that's really the year that you want to take the big step forward. So, but in your mind, should that influence the pick at all?
1: Hmm... I want this draft to be over with because there's so many different scenarios, situations to think about. I mean, I say, yeah, but at the same time, like could Drew Jones be in the major leagues in a year and a half or less than two years? Probably. Could Tamar Johnson, we talked about that hit tool and that power potential. Could he be a guy who doesn't flounder around the minor leagues for very long? Probably. Uh, So you have to imagine, you know, we don't, without really diving into knowing Could Jackson Holiday, he's probably the furthest, I would guess, is probably the furthest away from the major leagues of this group. But two of those high school guys, maybe even Elijah Green, those guys aren't necessarily going to be five-year projects. Uh, So they could also match that timeline as well. And you don't have to go with Brooksley in this situation. You can go with a guy with more upside who can also be in the major leagues and helping you out in the very near future.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of organizations and the Orioles aren't exempt from this probably feel like they can be more efficient in development now with high school players. I mean, the fact that we're seeing Gunnar Henderson as close to the major leagues as he is at 21 years old, three years removed from the draft was one of those years taken away by a pandemic um, is impressive. So I agree with you that, you know, it's not a guarantee that a high school guy is going to be five years away. And I think even if that does turn out to be the case, it doesn't hurt because you're going to have to find ways to keep that window of contention open. And we've seen some examples, you know, you look at the Royals, the Cubs where they had these good cores and then it seemed like they would all hit free agency within the same year or so. And things would just kind of fall apart after that. Now, obviously you can work around that by extending players, but you're not going to extend everyone. So there's something to be said, I think, for, Looking ahead a little bit and thinking, well, you know, yeah, Brooks Lee would make us better in 2024, but Tamar Johnson might make the 2026 to 2032 Orioles better.
1: And, you know, I kind of see, all right, hopefully we're not picking near the top of the draft. Hopefully we're much later in the first round next year. Well, all right, if you go after a Brooks Lee or Drew Jones or Tamar Johnson, let's say they don't stick around the minor leagues for very long – well, next year, you're not going to get that high-profile high school draft pick that's l 1-1 candidate. You're going to get the lower ceiling guy near the back end of the first round. And those are the guys, maybe you go after more project guys later in the first round when you have these later picks in coming years. And that can kind of fill the gaps there. You know, this the international classes, there have been some really impressive names already off to good starts in the DSL. We're seeing some of these guys reach uh, some recent international signs reach the FCL. Guys like Sammy Basayo is having a fantastic year. I think you're seeing those gaps fill in, and as the international classes grow, grow bigger and the talent gets better, uh, you can just kind of fill in the holes where you see fit. I think with this draft, you know, I think Bob brought up a good point a long time ago, and we brought it up with with Kobe Perez, and he was like, "That does make a lot of sense." I do agree with that. You know, the the international side is you bring in the high ceiling guys. College guys, you kind of help raise the floor a little bit. So, I, you know, it's this draft. I just wish we knew something. I just want just a teeny tiny morsel of information, just something. Uh, if it was any other organization, I would love this and I would be tuned in on draft night with my popcorn ready to go to see who it was. But since it's the Orioles, man, this is killing me. I can't do this for another week.
0: <laughs> is there anyone that we didn't mention that you think? could be in play for 1-1 one, one right now? Uh,
1: I don't think it's anybody else. I know there was talk about Cam Collier. There's some some rumblings there. I don't think that's the pick, although the more I, I hear about this kid, I love him, and I hope he goes to a good organization and has a fantastic career. Um, we've seen the talks of Jacob Barry. I think those have kind of subsided. If it's Jacob Barry, I'm not going to be excited about that pick at all. Uh, I don't really see anybody else it could be. I want to I don't know where this was, but I saw someone throw Gavin Cross's name in the conversation. The outfielder from Virginia Tech. That's another guy who I like him, but if he's the one one pick, that's another one where I'm scratching my head about that one. Uh, but I think it's those. I think it's those five guys. But again, it is the Orioles, and it could be someone like a Gavin Cross or someone that is randomly uh, their main target.
0: Yeah, I, I think back to 2020, we had actually kind of pivoted in our draft coverage a little bit from focusing at Austin Martin and Aza Lacey, Emerson Hancock, and to saying, well, who could the Orioles sign under slot? And I think we spent like a good 10 minutes on an episode talking about Zach Bean and never discussed Tess Kurstad. Um, I like to think I know more about the Orioles draft process now than I did then, because if I knew then what I know now, I would never have entertained the possibility of Austin Martin being drafted by the Orioles, but it's still hard to predict. And yeah, you know, if there is someone outside of those five players we mentioned, that's going to surprise us. I would hope that it's Cam Collier because I think he's by far the best prospect and the best fit for the Orioles. When you get beyond that group of five, we mentioned, but it could go anyway. Um, and a big part of this is, you know, what the Orioles are going to do with their next picks in particular 33. So I'll go to Vivek who was on our mock draft. So a few weeks ago as a guest, and he's got a question, which is any new candidates at 33 on your mind since our preliminary podcast.
1: I mean, not really. I haven't really looked into it too much. Just kind of reading these new mock drafts that come out. And like I mentioned, Connor prelet not being in baseball in America's top 40 something picks there. If he's available at with the Orioles pick next, I think, I'm going to try to pull it up here real quick, but if he's available, that's a guy I'm going after. Um, I still, I like the Jackson Ferris, the lefty who can throw heat. I know he's got the control issues, but it seems like he's going to want a lot of money uh, to bypass his college commitment. I think he was an Ole Miss Mississippi state. One of those two he's committed to. Uh, I wouldn't be mad at that pick at all either, but yeah, who do the baseball America in their latest has them going Peyton Graham shortstop out of Oklahoma. Um, I just get the sense that a lot of these college pitchers, these healthy college pitchers like Kumar Rocker, like I mentioned, Justin Campbell from Oklahoma States. Uh, is it Jerpy? Uh, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Cooper Jerpy from Oregon State. I think that's a name that's, I've see, heard a lot of other podcasts, a lot of other fans really liking, uh, hoping their team selects him. Uh, I just think those guys get Carson Wisenhunt has been pretty good. I believe last time I checked out on the Cape Cod league, from ecu he was suspended all year for a performance enhancing drug uh so but apparently he's been looking good and the cape so he probably moves up draft boards i'm kind of at this point just kind of banking on those guys moving up boards and some of these college guys moving down and the Orioles hopefully being able to nab one of them at 33
0: yeah i think that if they do go under slot with the first pick that's going to be their plan and you, know, you would hope, and I think that this class affords them the ability to do that, that there's more than one or two named in the mix because you got a little ways to go, and it's very possible someone could take them. Like, you know, I would hope that it's, and I doubt this is the case, but I would sincerely hope that it's not, you know, Kumar Rocker is number two on the Orioles board, and then you got to look a ways down before you find another pitcher because Kumar Rocker is probably not going to be available at 33 right now.
1: Yeah, no, it seems like at least that teams know what happened. Um, Maybe they can plan better uh, around that. They can either say, all right, for certain he's off our board or for certain we feel more confident, we're going to pull the trigger. I think probably all of us, I know I did, I think at least two or three of us had him going to the Angels. Uh, I think for sure he doesn't slip past them in this draft. I think he goes a lot earlier than probably people think this year. But yeah, a lot of comments there about the prep arms. You know, obviously haven't looked into those guys too much. The high school guys past the top college bats haven't really focused a lot of them yet, but yeah, it's what we do know is that the Orioles don't care about your public rankings. You can throw those out the window. They have their model. They have their plan. They've got their research and they're going to stick to that first and foremost. So they're going to completely ignore these baseball America prospect live, all these rankings. They don't care about them, uh, which is good stick to your guns. And you know, we'll never know, was Colton Cowser really that high on their board or is that a money-saving strategy? Kerstad, was he really high up on their board? Or you know what was that process with those guys like? But I like to think that they have their own board. It's unique. It fits what they want. And they're going to stick to that. And I like that at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we'll go now and we'll talk about Heston Kerstad, who has gotten the bump to high A Aberdeen after an excellent month at Delmarva during his time to Sewerbirds, He played 22 games and posted an OPS of 1.201 and hit it 463. And what we saw occur at while he was in Delmarva was the Orioles build up his workload to the point where he was playing nine innings in right field pretty consistently. He was also running really well, not showing any ill effects from the hamstring injury that sidelined him at the beginning of this year. Or from myocarditis that kept him out for all of 2021. So Kurstad looking very healthy right now, dominated against competition at low A, and now we'll move up to high A. You know, Nick, I know that this is really not surprising. Um, in fact, it probably could have happened a week or two ago based on the way that Kurstad had been playing. But just your general thoughts on what you saw from him at Del Marva and what you're going to kind of be watching for with him at
1: Aberdeen. The guy is phenomenal just for everything that he's been through. I don't think that can be said enough. You know, the myocarditis, the hamstring injuries this year, been on to what over two plus years before in between competitive games. And after that major, you know, the, the heart condition was obviously huge. We can't you know, understress that enough. And the fact that there were questions about is Kirsty ever going to play baseball? Is he ever going to step on the baseball field again? We didn't know. And we may never know because the Orioles have done a really good job of locking Kershaw away and keeping his access to the media pretty limited. I imagine fairly scripted. Uh, so we won't know just how serious it got, but he's back on the field, 22 games, 13 of those games were extra base hits. And, and so he hasn't missed a step. The one thing you didn't see, he only hit two home runs in 22 games. Uh, I'm not concerned there. Now he goes to Aberdeen where, you know, they seem to zap a little bit of your power I wouldn't be shocked if Kirsten had start start showing more power in Aberdeen, pull in a little Cesar Prieto up there, and start smashing home runs. He's more comfortable now. I think that would be fantastic. Uh, it's just good to see him out there in the field and playing as well as he is. Uh, this is just a fantastic story for him. I'm sure he's over the moon. And honestly, I don't think if he he's not going to hit almost 500 over the next four weeks in Aberdeen. I don't think that's going to happen. I could be wrong, but I don't see a near 500 average and 1,200 OPS in 22 games in Aberdeen. But if he's hitting just half as well as that, which is crazy to say, if he's half as good as that, I don't think he's going to be in Aberdeen for very long. And we see him up in Bowie, maybe as a nice little playoff push by the end of the... Well, Bowie's not going to make it to the playoffs. I take that back. Uh, unfortunately, Bowie's not going to make it this year. But as a little late-season reward, hey, let's get you two weeks' worth of the bats up in Bowie. And then next year, opening day, you're in Bowie. And by the end of the year, you're pushing for the major leagues. I don't see that timeline as being unrealistic.
0: No, no not at all. Um, the way that he not only played but looked at Delmarva, I think he's healthy. I think he's locked in at the plate right now. And I agree with you. You know, Although we talk a lot about Aberdeen, not being a home run hitters park and that it's not the place that you're necessarily going to see big power gains. Kerstadt is a good enough power hitter that he'll go to Aberdeen. And if he's, you know, locked in the home runs are going to come. Um, you know, the fact that he only hit two in 22 games is not concerning to me at all. And you can tell that the power is there just by how hard he hits the ball. And I, you know, For the rest of the season, yeah, I think getting him to buoy as long as he can stay healthy is completely realistic. And I think the other thing that we have seen, too, is that the Orioles kind of have their own data points. They're not going to look, you know, if Kersad goes to Aberdeen and hits 260, they're not going to say, well, we're leaving him in high A because he's hitting 260. They're going to have other things that they're looking at and decide, you know, yeah, he's hitting 260, but he's had bad luck. This is really what he should be doing. He's going to buoy. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's essentially what they did with Colton Cowser and Connor Norby. So I think that that could happen with Kurstad, but I don't really see him struggling in that vein.
1: No, not really. I mean, it's still a ball. He's still, what, 23, 23 years old. We talked about the track record, great hitter at Arkansas, Team USA experience. So even with all that time off, like he's got the pedigree there. The only concern, I guess, would be how is his body going to hold up By the end of the year, he's only been 22 games, only 80 at bats in Delmarva, but that is a long layoff. And so I wonder, you know, if he gets 40 games when he's 40 games into his tenure in Aberdeen, and we've got the finish line to the season is right there, how's his body going to be holding up at that point? And would you maybe start to sit him more and say, all right, instead of pushing you to go to Bowie at the end, let's just keep you in high A, call it a year. You're starting opening day next year in Bowie with still that chance to be knocking on the doors of the major leagues the, in the next season. Uh, so I wouldn't be concerned if he doesn't get promoted to Bowie this year, because I imagine if if he's hitting well and he doesn't get promoted, it's probably a fatigue issue, which you can't really blame the guy at that point.
0: No. And I, I wonder because he I mean, looking at the numbers now, he was only the designated hitter in six of his 22 games at Delmarva. He actually got in the right field more than I thought he did. So, Do you think that maybe a way to manage the workload a little bit would be as you get towards the end of the year, flip that around a little bit, maybe he DHs more often?
1: I could see that Uh, for sure. It seems like we say these things that make so much sense and be so obvious and the Orioles uh, go the complete opposite route there. Like Adley Rushman in the major leagues, we thought he'd be doing a lot more DH first base, but uh, he's not. They're keeping him behind the plate. But you look at the outfield in Aberdeen, it's pretty deep, but – I imagine John Rhodes is in Bowie in the near future. Um, and so there's really I don't know. They probably DH him more, but at the end of the day, I think they probably keep him in the outfield more often. We'll have to see. I'm trying to think and look at this outbreak in your roster and kind of guess where guys get moved to, but um and we'll see what the draft picks, which draft picks come in and what the rosters look like after the draft, but We'll see what the plan is with Kerstad. Who knows? We, you guys had Sam Jelinek on, and he talked about the Orioles' plan with him and Delmarva, and it seemed like that plan went out the window almost instantly. Uh, so who knows?
0: A yeah, good point here from Simpkin Tribute. I bet they leave him in the two slots to maximize A-Bs, like with Rutsman, even though he possesses a three- or four-hitter. Yeah, I think that's probably going to be part of the approach going forward. It definitely seemed to be how they were handling him at Delmarva. We go now to one of the big stories from last week, which is the news that Gunnar Henderson has been selected to the MLB Futures game. He is surprisingly the lone Orioles representative going to Los Angeles next weekend. And that comes after we're in the midst of an excellent season between Norfolk and Bowie. So far, Henderson has appeared in 76 games and as opposed to a 960 OPS with 13 homers, all the while doing that against competition that is older than him. And that's something we have talked about a lot. And the pure stats don't tell the full story. He's gotten a lot better as a shortstop this year. Um, the strikeout to walk numbers have improved greatly from where they were a year ago. So congratulations to Gunnar Henderson on this well-earned uh, selection to the MLB Futures game.
1: Here, again, we're running out of adjectives uh, and good things to say about Gunnar Henderson at this point. Like, it's great to see him honored uh, going to the Futures game. Where is it this year? Hello, the dodger the, stadium. perfect uh can, all those Corey seager comps let's let's really get a better sense of that playing at dodger stadium uh i know a lot of fans were probably angry as well saw that conversation about the orioles only getting one representative in this year's game but like there's politics involved with these decisions uh the organization ha- they have to give these guys permission as well i think that's why we saw marcos Duplan in the game last year like he's not a prospect of note but Maybe if you give him one inning, he can dazzle you. Unfortunately, I think he got rocked in that Futures game last year, and now he's DFA'd and and bounced around or anything. But you're not going to see D.L. Hall wasting bullets in that game. And I don't think you're going to see the Orioles. I don't think they want to see any of their pitchers off their schedules, off their routines, to go to this exhibition all the way across the country. But Gunner, this is a guy who went from, what, 41, 42 on MLB pipelines rankings to now he's the number five prospect uh, in all of baseball. Uh, he's a guy who's exploding onto the national scene now as well. So this is a perfect chance to showcase him. MLB Network can have a field day highlighting him, a guy who made this big jump in their rankings. And so hopefully he puts a, pool, a full, a uh, a couple of balls in play as well because I believe we get StatCast data for this game. And that's just fun to look at. Those rare chances we get StatCast numbers on minor leaguers, even if it's just one at bat, it's something to look at uh, for you know the, the cool stat nerds like us who like that information. So I'm hoping Gunner gets in, connects on a ball or two, and has a good hit, maybe against a lefty. I was looking at the rosters earlier. A couple of lefties, like Andrew Abbott and uh, Schuster. I think he's with the Braves organization still. I might be wrong there, but a couple of lefties on that roster. And I hope Gunner is able to connect on one against those lefties. And then uh, his teammate in this game, hopefully uh, Anthony Volpe, goes 0-2-2 two or two strikeouts. And then Gunner's the real star this game for the AL squad. <laughs>
0: The um, future game which is seven innings will take place Saturday, July 16th, and it will air yeah. on Peacock uh, at 7 p.m. Eastern. So yeah. something to watch with MLB Network producing the telecast and me airing the game at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. The only player I guess that I was surprised was left off from the Orioles was probably Jordan Westberg. I thought that he might make it just because he's been so good this year and it's, probably the only chance you're going to have to offer you know to honor him with this designation but at the same time you know the American League is loaded with infield prospects so I don't find it hard to believe that there are prospects better than Westboro and other organizations
1: yeah it's not uh, who's playing the best situation here it's not like an all-star squad of of prospects who get chosen. Like I said, there's politics involved. It's which teams want to send their guys out here and play who's hurt, who might be nursing some injuries and needs that week off. So I am not concerned that it's just, just Gunner. Uh, it's great. I think his hitting coach is going to be Adrian Beltray in this game. If I remember correctly, uh, I think it's just a good opportunity for someone like Gunner who is right there at the major leagues. He's going to be around a lot of guys who I think are, most of his roster that he's going to be playing with at least the hitters are going to be at lower levels than he is but he's going to be in that same dugout with a lot of former major leaguers some hall of famers are going to be there playing at dodger stadium i think it's just a great opportunity for him to kind of soak it all in and enjoy this moment because hopefully by the end of the year he's a major leaguer for the Baltimore orioles playing every day at camden yards i don't think that's out of the question here and it's just what a story what second round pick high school kid seen as this long-term project. Here he is just turned 21 right there in the door of the major leagues. It's a fantastic story.
0: Couldn't agree more. And we'll move now to our final segment of the night, which is where we sound out players outside of our top 30, whether it's a good game, a good performance, good week, or just something interesting in the stat line we want to take note of. And I'll go right to next picks.
1: Yeah, I'm going down low to Delmarva. I went Luis Valdez, Delmarva Shorebirds, infielder, outfielder. I told everybody before the season started, when we were looking at these rosters, that Luis Valdez was going to be an explosive player for Delmarva. I don't really know. I still don't know how much of a quote-unquote prospect he is or what his ceiling is. But as a lower-level minor league hitter, Valdez is fun. uh, And he's done... In the last week, he hit 286 with a 545 on base percentage. One double, seven walks to four strikeouts. But the main draw here with Valdez, as we all know, the stolen bases, he was five for five in stolen base attempts. He had four in game one of Sunday's doubleheader. He just would not stop at one point. He's got 41 stolen bases on the year, which leads the Orioles organization. I believe second place is still Daryl Hernandez with just 16 for reference. He leads the entire Carolina league by six or seven. And he's still raw in like every area of his game, even stolen bases. He's just relying on pure speed. So it'll be fun to watch him develop. And I was looking at the splits. He actually hit 333 in June, which blew my mind because I was not expecting that. He's hitting 290 right now in July with a 450 on base percentage. So shout out to Luis Valdez and my pitcher. I'm going Dan Hammer. I don't know if anyone's been able to watch hammer pitch this year, but he's the 24 year old guy, former 13th round pick at of Pittsburgh 2019 draft. And I think he really only got noticed or talked about after the draft because you saw Dan hammer with the hammer curve ball in his scouting report. And you saw Jordan cannon, the catcher drafted at San Houston state. And we all wanted to see Dan hammer throw to Jordan cannon and what would be the greatest duo pitcher catcher duo name-wise in all of baseball history. But Cannon's retired, and Hammer's had injuries and major control issues. He walked 36 guys last year in 19 innings, all in the FCL. So I thought he was going to get cut, but now he's in Aberdeen. And the other day, he threw five scoreless innings with seven strikeouts, just two walks. He's up to 14 strikeouts, four walks in his last 11.2 innings. The walks are still an issue, but he's got 70 strikeouts this year in 58 innings between Delmarva and Aberdeen, and – He may never make it out of Aberdeen, but shout out to him on a, a really good week. It's fun to watch him.
0: Yeah, it absolutely was. And Valdez, you know, his speed has been special all year, but it does feel like the bat has picked up a little bit over the last month or so. I'm kind of going the opposite end of the spectrum here, at least for the hitters. And I'm going to shout out Robert Newstrom, who has been pretty good since coming off the IL. July 8th was his first game since June 23rd. He played all three games over the weekend and went four for 12 with a home run in that span, that home run coming as part of a three-for-four performance that earned him our baby bird of the day back on July 9th. He now has 10 home runs this season overall for Norfolk. I know there's still the questions about where does he stack up with the Orioles' outfield depth? Does he get a shot at the major leagues this year? But I think so far, he's staying the course, at least in terms of his power. And if he can get regular at-bats and stay healthy... He'll do himself some favors in getting that major league call up. And for pitchers, a guy that you've heard here a lot before, but I feel like there's something a little bit more to his performance lately that I wanted to mention, and that's Justin Armbruster, who came in relief behind Kyle Bradish in his rehab start on Saturday and actually got the win against the Somerset Patriots. Five innings allowed, two runs on six hits, with four strikeouts and a walk. Now. Something I find interesting about Armbruster, you're looking at a small sample size at Bowie. It's his 18 innings pitched, but he has only walked one batter in that span. That gives him a 0.5 walk per nine inning rate. And his time at Aberdeen, his walk per nine inning rate was three. So it was not unprecedented last year to see players improve their command as they moved up the Orioles system. Zach Peak was the one was one of the examples that we saw last year. His command got better over the course of the summer, including after he was promoted to Aberdeen from Delmarva, Arm Brewster might be that guy this year. So really keep an eye on what his walk rate is the rest of the way, because if there was one thing you could possibly pick apart about his numbers in Aberdeen, it might have been the walk rate, but he is cutting that down so far drastically with the Bay Sox.
1: Keith Law called him out for being just an Oregon guy. So that tells you right there, there's a lot more to pay attention to because, um, Keith Law saw three pitches and was like, I don't like this guy. So, inverse, yeah, that's a fantastic season he's having in AA. I've seen some other people agree as well that the fastball plays well. This is a guy who, if he ever develops uh, a really standout secondary pitch, you can fall back on being a power late and relief arm. So, yeah, shout out to all of these guys. It's been a – this was a, a more fun week. I don't know. I feel like the last couple of weeks maybe I'm just like starting to get a little midseason burnout, ready for the break as well. But I felt like this past week, a lot of guys really stepped it up. Guys who needed to step up, they showed out this week. And shout-out to Kyle Bradish with his three perfect innings in Bowie and his rehab outing. That was good to see as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. and <laughs> looking forward to him being back on a major league mound soon. So I mentioned this is the top of the show, but I'll repeat it again and give it a little bit more detail, which is that we are going to have a special episode Sunday night to coincide with the MLB draft. Bob will be back, and the three of us will be on Live shortly before the draft begins. We're going to come on about about 6.30 or so. And we'll be on the air, of course, when the Orioles make their first pick. And we'll see how things go. We might be on the air for the first 10 picks or so live on Sunday night, perhaps longer. Uh, but be sure to check that out. And then we'll be back at our regular time on Monday with a recap of day two of the draft. Last year we did this when Stephen Loftus was with Baltimore Sports and Life at that time. Now with the Atlanta Braves joined us. This time around will be the three of us recapping the draft, so you will not want to miss that. And Nick, before we wrap up, uh, any final thoughts?
1: Do we have to make an official pick right now of who this is going to be? Who Right now, who are you putting your money on the pick is going to be?
0: My prediction, I'm sticking with Jackson Holliday.
1: I hate this question. I'm the one that asked it. It's the worst question ever, too. I'm... I'm going to put my, my prediction on record here. I'm going to say Tamar Johnson.
0: Neither of us picked Drew Jones. I'm wondering now how Bob would pick if he was here, but I get the sense that Bob would probably make it a 2-3 majority for Tamar Johnson, but he can he'd answer probably, that question at a later time. Oh, I,
1: he'd probably go Brixley. Probably.
0: <laughs> no. We'll so, see what happens. Yep, We will be back on Sunday night. In the meantime, check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest articles, including Orioles, Ravens, college sports coverage. Our minor league all-star team, which minor league mid-season all-star team, which we discussed last week on the podcast, is up there now, as well as some other great Orioles content. While you're there, hop on the message board and join the discussion with fellow readers of the site, as well as contributors. And follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge. We'll have all the draft and non-draft news leading up to our next show on Sunday. For Nick Stevens and for the vacationing Bob Phelan, this is Zach Spedden. you've been listening to on the Verge.